Talk Radio 570 KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends. KVI Want to Know Weekends. Get ready to raise a toast with Seattle's most spirited hour of talk, Happy Hour Radio. Explore the best in Washington wines, beer, spirits, food, and more with your guide, Seattle sommelier, Christopher Chan. It's Happy Hour Radio, right now on Talk Radio 570 KVI. All right, Seattle. Hello, Puget Sound, and welcome to Happy Hour Radio. Hey, it's time for, uh, well, it's time to have some fun. Thanks so much for joining me every Saturday night right here. On 570 KBI, I'm your host, Christopher Chan, Event Sommelier, your weekend wine guy, and uh, you're uh, the man of, well, masquerade wines. Well, that's not me. That's actually Bill Kimberly, and I'm I'm pleased to have Bill here in the studio. We're going to chat about uh, um, what he's doing up there in Bellingham, because, you know, we think of that uh, cool college up there, uh, Bellingham, what's it, Western Washington? Western Washington. Washington. <laughs> Go Vikings? Go Vikings, Go absolutely. Vikings, yeah, I remember. Hey, Bill, welcome to Happy Hour. Why, thank you. Uh, that's good. Um, I know we've had you on before chatting about the uh, Whatcom County uh, Wine and Distillery Trail, which is really exciting. You've yes. got a Facebook page, and you can fi- find information. You've got nine wineries up there and three distilleries and yes. some breweries. That's right. That's cool. So yep. um, Bellingham is a, a thriving. Now, are you seeing a bunch of the college kids come over once they turn 21? Um, you know, I, I think the breweries would probably oh, say yeah. yes to that more. Yeah. Um, we tend to get on um, the parents on homecoming weekend <laughs> oh. <laughs> they they tend to find us perfect yeah, yeah. well that's great um homecoming uh it's good to know that they still got a program up there i know there was some disillusionment uh in the past couple of years uh, you're a wine guy you how'd you get into wine well i i got into wine um surprisingly via beer when i was in grad school at berkeley um uh, nothing grad students like more than good cheap beer and we couldn't afford it on our stipend so uh, we had access to yeast media and autoclaves and carboys and everything so we started making beer and this was back in the early 80s you know before homebrewing was really much of a hobby and it's a hobby I've, I still dabble in um, occasionally and of course as you get older and move in you know, away from graduate school into your professional career, you take an interest in wine. And are you not in grad school anymore? I am not in grad school anymore. <laughs> well, some so, people take forever to graduate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I did it in six and a half years. Not bad. <laughs> Good for you. Um, but yeah, so you, I found myself in my thirties, and you're going out to business dinners now, and you're having wine. And of course, as a home brewer, I'm thinking, well, how do you make this? And I really had no interest in the wine kits that you know you can find oh, in any right. homebrew store um so fast forward to late 90s um i moved to los angeles area and i managed to get um hooked up with a home winemaking club that was run out of the local homebrew store called cellar masters and they claim to be the oldest home winemaking club in the country you say port angeles uh los angeles oh los angeles yeah, okay. yeah. it's like wow yeah um so you know, a lot of people who had been making wine for many years and they all had, you know, nice vineyard connections. So all of a sudden, now I can get good California wine grapes. And that was really um, half the gateway to me. The other half was, of course, um, the romantic intoxication of visiting uh, the various wine regions in wow, France that really, really fun and easy. really got me going. Okay. And uh, when did you make your first vintage? So my first vintage uh, for Masquerade was 2004. 
2004. And Masquerade, um, I understand your your wife your, likes masks, and this is kind of the yeah. Name. My wife Jennifer um, was a mask collector when we met, and um, you know when we in the very early days of planning our winery, we were, we were actually. Um, believe it or not, on a flight to New Orleans for a vacation, we were trying to come up with a name. Appropriate master. And, you know, so, you know, we're going to New Orleans and everybody knows the 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 mask imagery that you associate with the French Quarter and then her collecting masks, and we just thought masquerade is it. That's it. So, we, well, that's fun. with us. Well, um, I always think of that song out of the Phantom of the Opera, Masquerade. Yes, yeah, yes. One of my favorite tunes, and I do love musicals. It tells you you're getting, I'm getting old, although I do like Rock of Ages. I digress. So you're making wine, and what, why did you gravitate towards sparkling? Was that that brew, uh, that, that experience with beer in the past? Well, not really. What really lit the fire um, in me for sparkling wines was a trip that, my wife Jennifer and I made two champagne in the fall of 2001. Oh, um, bet you no one was there. Uh, not in November. Oh, no, yeah. it's very uh, not well traveled. That was after 9/11. That, so. Exactly, it was just a few months after 9/11. Now, for those who've not been to Champagne, um, you can really break it up into north south. North, the Marne Valley is where Rance and Epernay are. Um, so that's those are where the champagnes that most people know of come from, and they tend to be Chardonnay based. Yeah, we stayed um, south of there in, in another valley called the Aube. The Aube, yeah, Pinot Noir, and those wines are more Pinot Noir based. Um, Let's go to Drapier. I'm so glad you mentioned that because um, a lot of the places that we visited were you know just small family grower operations and. You know, rather than a tasting room, they bring you into the house and they clear off the kitchen table and they pour their <laughs> wines for you. Well, one of the more established places we went to in the Aube was Drapier. And Michelle Drapier, who speaks wonderful English, was um, inadvertently um, turned into a mentor for me. Um, we ended up going back and visiting him probably three times the 10 days we were in Champagne. Oh, wow. And, you know, he, he let us... You know, you had that gate a, code, huh? Yeah, you took as advantage a, as a fly in the wall and watch the disgorging, and it was really eye opening, and it really made me think, you know, I can do this. And so, fast forward uh, a number of years, and we moved to Washington. We started Masquerade, and we thought, what are we going to do to distinguish ourselves? And I thought we need to make a dive into. Method Champenois Sparkling Wines. How exciting. I'm glad that you found Drapier. I've actually had Drapier on the show. Uh, and their, their lovely daughter, yeah. Charlene, is like, woo! Okay. Um, uh, ebullient, of course. Uh, very effervescent. Yes. So you're making sparkling wines. Um, where are you finding fruit? Because obviously Champagne is known for a little colder weather than yeah. Washington State wine growing regions. I don't think you're getting Puget Sound grapes because you just can't count on the vintage every year because of our rain and our conditions. So where are the where are the grape sources from? So I'm getting most of my grapes from Yakima Valley, uh, Rattlesnake Hills, um, and very close but not within Red Mountain. I, I have a really nice vineyard wow. source for Pinot Meunier, which is one of the three um, Champagne varietals. Um, one of the six. <laughs> the three, yes, the, the other three, hardly anyone ever talks about. But uh, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier are the the major players in in Champagne. Um, and Pinot Meunier, at least in North America, is not a well known grape. 
even people who know sparkling wines may not know of it. So it's a hard grape to find, and once I found a source, um, I'm holding it tight. All right. So the first wine you have is actually a method champenoise, meaning you had the secondary fermentation in the bottle. In the bottle, yes. And what's this called? This is, well, the name is Effervescing Elephant, and that will touch on another aspect of the wine project. But th this is my champagne-style blend. So it's 40% Pinot Noir, 30% Pinot Meunier, 30% Chardonnay. Method Champenois, um, the sample you have, uh, the bottle's been on the lees for, for about 18 months. Yeah, it's very toasty. Yes. Um, it we, has a, a very cereal finish to me. Yes, which is very uh, characteristic of the yeastiness that you get with extended lees aging. Now, do you riddle by hand or do you have a I do. zero palette? I, I riddle everything by hand. Which hand do you use? I use both. <laughs> you have to. Otherwise, I'd spend all day. Yeah, no, but no. you know, I I do tell people that uh, you know with each, each of these bottles you take home, I I personally have probably touched it fifty or sixty times. Wow, wow! Now that's some serious ownership. And do you have pupitres as well? I do not. No. So how do you riddle? Um, I use two hands. I go two hands, and the, I, the pupitres, right? The what yes. you saw in champagne. I. Riddling racks. Yeah, riddling yeah, racks. Yeah, I used the, the American term. Yes, but um, yeah, I had some riddling racks made by a local carpenter. I've got okay. 12 of them, so I have capacity for about 1,500 bottles wow. at one time. All right. Effervescing Elephant. Effervescing Elephant. So that's a funny name. Um, let me tell you two things about it. First of all, the name comes from a very obscure song <laughs> written by... Sid Barrett, who is a founding member of Pink Floyd. Of uh, Pink Floyd. Yes. Sid so Barrett. You, you will find um, in the deepest bowels of YouTube a 90-second ditty that he wrote called Effervescing Elephant. And, uh, now that it, sounds like a Berkeley grad kind Absolutely, of thing. absolutely. Um, however, the, the visual connection with Effervescing Elephant, this is our um, artist series. And um, you'll notice that we have this... Baby little, got back. Yeah, cute little picture of a couple elephants on the label yeah um, but the real north the real elephant connection <laughs> is that painting was painted by a young male elephant from Thailand with his trunk oh I remember that. and yeah, this yeah. is a collaboration with a nonprofit group out of San Francisco called the Asian Elephant Art and Conservation Project um, and they advocate for um, rescue and rehabilitation of the vanishing wow, population of Asian elephants. Wow, who knew that elephant could draw that? What a, that's an artiste. Yeah, it's really remarkable. And I, I'm pretty sure it's not paint by numbers. It's not. <laughs> um, so this group has probably about 50 or 60 painting elephants in their program. Um, most of them paint random, a la Jackson Pollock, but a few of them have the uh, patience to learn to paint uh, something very real-looking. I love it. The wine is delicious. Um, nice job on the acidity and the actual finish, the balance and, and creaminess, the toastiness. That's what champagne is all about. And I know that it takes money and time to make these wines. And, of course, you're competing with um, uh, a champagne. But I, 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 I'll say this, folks. Your money stays in Washington, and that's that's really something to say because you buy these wines, the champagne, and I love champagne, but you know the money goes to France. Hello. But if you want to support the economy, check out Masquerade and this effervescing elephant. Great stuff. 18 months on the lees, non-vintage wine. You also make another sparkling. Well, I actually right now make three other sparklings. The other three are um, varietal sparklings, and the one that I brought today is a demi-sec sparkling Riesling. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. Acid is, is moderate plus. Um, it has a little more fleshiness on the palate, a little more nectarine, peach, and touch of lime. Um, and it, I get a hint of petroleum on there. Is this actually part of the reductive yeah. style? Or? Yeah, well, and, and that's also um, uh, very characteristic in the fr- flavor profile of still Rieslings as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that's tasty. Yeah. And I'm always fearful of sparkling wines that have um, too much sugar, and even champagne has too much yep. sugar sometimes, and not enough acidity. This is really delicious wine, and you make this every year. This is so. This is I do. Yeah, you say it non-vintage, but it's really more of a vintage wine, or what? Yes, in this case, it it is a vintage wine, although we don't label it as vintage. Just it, to be consistent across our sparkling wine profile, sure. I just happen to label them all non-vintage. Well, the effervescing elephant is the only true non-vintage right now. Okay. And uh, you also make red wine. I make red wine and white wine. The sample I brought today is our 2011 Columbia Valley Syrah. Um, Vineyard sources uh, about equal from Elephant Mountain in Zilla and Burgess Vineyard in Pasco. Mm. That's delicious. So more on the earthy style rather than the the, uh, peppery style of Syrah. Yeah. um, I, I... I tell you, the, the aroma wasn't quite what I expected. It has a little bit of a um, sort of a, a character that I uh, I don't know what to call it, but the flavor palette, the palette on the and it's just absolutely it's red fruit, it's dark red, it's got some spice, and it tastes like syrah, which of course it's supposed to. Indeed, that's great. Um, and your production for these sparkling wines and red wines or in white wines are so I do about two thousand cases a year total. Uh, about a third, maybe a little bit more, is sparkling cool. wine. All right. Um, and also part of my business is I do method champenois by contract for other oh. wineries. Oh, so. very cool. All right. Website. How do we find more about you? Uh, website is masqueradewinesplural dot com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, what's your Twitter handle? It is at Masquerade Wines. At Masquerade Wines. Bill Kimberly, CEO, winemaker, and forklift driver, I'm sure. With Masquerade Wines, hey, thanks for taking time to share your beautiful wines with me on Happy Hour Radio. Thank you very much. All right, folks. Hey, check uh, check out the Watkin County Wine Distillery Trail and uh, put on your calendar that the uh, Bellingham Wine F- Northwest Wine Festival is something you have to check out. We're going to have a lot more coming up on the show, so stick around right here on Happy Hour Radio. Big names, big news. Sean Hannity, weekdays 3 to 6 p.m. Talk Radio 570, KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends, and you're listening to Happy Hour Radio. Now back to Seattle Somalia, Christopher Chan. All right, welcome back to Happy Hour Radio. Time for segment two, round two. If we got something great in your glass, and I've got a special guest in studio, uh, one of my old friends, uh, great friends, Eric Siegelbaum, who is the uh, ex- corporate wine director for Star Restaurants in the capital city of Washington, D.C. He's uh, He likes to say Seattle is home, but I know he was in Florida for a while. Um, but what a treat. I know you're coming in. Hey, Eric, welcome to Happy Hour. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, so cool. So um, you just flew in, and your arms are exhausted, I'm sure. But uh, you're From drinking all that wine. From drinking all that wine. Okay, uh, are you from Florida or from Seattle? Both. Both. And neither. And neither? Um, I wasn't born in either, but Seattle became my home when I moved here back in 2007, and 
even though now, as you say, I live in the other Washington, Seattle's always going to be my home. Awesome. Well, I like that. I lived in D.C., just outside of D.C. for a little bit uh, back in uh, 1990 in uh, Laurel, Maryland with my college sweetheart. And that was uh, quite a trip. <laughs> the city's changed a little bit since oh, then. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure they uh, raised all those uh, brick buildings and uh, chain link basketball courts, etc. Um, but you're in the wine bug. And I remember our first meeting. We were at uh, Ocean Air. That's right. Ocean Air. And you popped in um, this this really handsome, cocky little kid sitting down. <laughs> and I'm feeling like I'm the veteran dude. And uh, I start posing you questions. And for, for whatever it was, we hit it off. And uh, here we are. Yeah, you put me through the ringer. I remember very specifically it was, uh, it was the dessert course. And it was a Cabernet paired with it. And I made a quiet comment about I'm not so sure that, you know, red wine, dry red wines and chocolate ever really work the way people think they do. And you enter you are like okay Eric tell everybody here what you would have paired yeah I put you on the spot you know I deserved it I needed that initiation well, that's good well that uh, got you definitely ingratiated into the Seattle sommelier community and you are an advanced sommelier indeed I love that um, are you uh, have aspirations for the next level always climbing that mountain I know it's a uh, forever mountain it's like one of those uh, uh, stair climbers <laughs> you kind of feel like you're stuck in in one place sometimes um, you were uh, the director of wine at Schwartz Brothers? Correct. Excellent. And uh, so that was Daniels and... At the three Daniels Broilers, Chandler's Crab House, and Spazzo Italian Grill and Wine Bar. Yeah. How about before that, where you were working somewhere else? Yeah, so before that, I was in Miami, uh, helped open or reopen uh, and revitalize a boutique luxury hotel called the Hotel Victor. Uh, also helped David Boulay open his spot at the Ritz-Carlton down in South Beach and was celebrity chef Johnny Vincenzo's wine director for some time. Uh, and after I left the People's Republic of South Beach, I came here to Seattle, and uh, that's when our friendship blossomed. And uh, after six years in Seattle, spent a year at sea as the head sommelier of the world, which is a really amazing place. Uh, and that's a cruise ship. Almost. It's the size of a cruise ship. Um, a cruise ship of that size would have 2,000 passengers. This had 195 apartments, all oh. privately owned. Um, and the whole idea was circumnavigating the globe, offering its residents the the best and the best. Basically, travel the world in luxury without leaving the comfort of home. Wow. So, I always uh, thought you would uh, find some granddaughter on that ship from some really rich folks <laughs> to fall in love. But I see that uh, you do have a lovely uh, uh, attache. Um, accompaniment here tonight and uh, so fun and uh, I'm glad she's in Seattle and welcome it's always sunny by the way we just put the uh, the rain out there to keep everyone away <laughs> um, so what are you doing now so um, well I'm in Seattle uh, a because it's a great reason to come back I don't really need a reason to come back other than just coming back to the place where my heart still lies but uh, I came in for Riesling Rendezvous which is an every three-year event this is the fifth one now that's happened uh, it's a collaboration between uh, Chateau Saint-Michel and uh, Ernie Lozen of Dr. Lozen um, in collaboration also with the International Riesling uh, Foundation, which to my knowledge is the only global organization for wine that's based on a single grape rather than a region or producers association. This is all about Riesling. So every three years uh, they bring winemakers, uh, producers, people in the business, sommeliers from all around the world, legitimately all around the globe. We had winemakers from New Zealand, from Australia, from Tasmania, from Germany, um, all over France. It was really fantastic. New York. New York, Michigan, Okanagan Valley. Yeah. By the way, uh, Okanagan made some really great splashes. So uh, if you ever find yourself up in British Columbia, 
Don't disc- <laughs> don't discount what's drinking up there, especially in, in the in the name of Riesling. I liked it. Um, and of course, Washington State was uh, well represented as well. Uh, but it's just a really fantastic uh, multi-day event that explores Riesling start to finish, um, every, in every way you can imagine, from you know sales and production, from structural differences, from terroir differences. Uh, I, I feel like that's the conference that would make anybody love Riesling, even if they didn't. That's cool. And it was all held at Shadow San Michel on the grounds and Bell Harbor, right? Correct. Yeah, the opening event, which is actually a public grand tasting that you can buy tickets to. So plan now. The next one's in three years. Um, that is the grand tasting at Chateau St. Michel's lovely grounds. And then uh, the actual conference itself was right down at Bell Harbor. Uh, which made it sometimes a little hard to focus on the wine when you could focus on that gorgeous view. Oh, yeah, it's great. And, of course, uh, you how many wines did you taste? How many Rieslings were there? Oh, goodness. Um, easily tasted over 400. Oh, wow. Um, between the walk-around tastings, the grand tasting, and the seminars. Um, but what I really like about the way they structured is there are two major, uh, not so much guided tastings, but major blind tastings of 20 Rieslings. So it's your breakfast for two days of the conference. At 9.30 a.m., you're tasting 20 Rieslings. Uh, the first day, it is... Um, perceptually dry, and I believe, don't quote me on this, I believe they capped that as less than 10 grams per liter of residual sugar. Um, and then the next day is more than dry. They don't really like to use the word off dry or semi-sweet. Oh, more than dry. Um, like and, and again, it's about perception. Mm-hmm. And those that tasting ranged from, are you sure this isn't fully dry, to I think the largest, uh, we had a beer in Auschlesa from Robert Weil, that was like 260 grams per liter, but well-balanced of the city, it too. It tastes dry? <laughs> No, no, that was the sweet tasting, okay. or that was the, that was the more than dry tasting. Um, but it's really fantastic to taste twenty rieslings in context from around the world in this similar style of category, and really get an understanding of that grape in in a global context. But also, you know, what they're really good at is after the wine is revealed, and there are so many shocked murmurs when you know you're talking about amazing panelists here and and a room full of people who live, breathe, and make riesling, and people sure that oh that's got to be German and looks like it was Michigan and sure like wow. well that tastes like it could be Australian and turns out it was British Columbian so there were some really really great elements to that but ultimately you know after the wines are revealed and, and the shock um, sort of settles then you get to see the actual technical uh, a- aspects of it so uh, the residual sugar the TA, acid, the yeah. acid, and uh, interestingly enough, the pH only was really something that the New World producers had. Most of the Old World producers like pH. What is that? <laughs> no, not not that they don't know. It's just like this isn't. Eh, we don't really pay attention to that. It's it's more organic in the in the vineyard and the winemaking. Um, and then what I really liked is if the winemaker, someone from the winery, was there, then they grabbed the microphone to talk about that vintage, that wine, that production method, answer any questions for a minute or two. So it's a it's a really well thought out. Very in depth. So exciting! That's yeah. cool. I'm sorry I missed it. I was there three years ago, and I'm uh, speaking with Eric Siegelbaum, who is the corporate wine director for Star Restaurants on the East Coast, uh, a former Seattleite boy, uh, young man, I should say. And uh, <laughs> so good to have him back in studio. Well, for the first time back in Seattle, I should say. Um, Recently, Rendezvous actually takes place every year, but they move it uh, to different places. Right? One's in Germany, and one's in Australia. That's right. So it's three years every third years here in Seattle or Woodenville and Bell Harbor. Uh, very fun and. Uh, um, did you were you able to nail some of those? Did you uh, guess Okanagan? Uh, you know, I didn't get any of the Okanagans, but I was able to pick up on a couple Washington ones, uh, a couple ah. German, a couple Alsace. But uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, it's it's not really about figuring out where the wine's from. 
human nature, of course, we want to be able yeah. to nail it. Um, yeah. And it's a very good feeling. Psalm nature, I should say. Uh, yeah, psalm nature, absolutely. Uh, but it was just more about understanding the wine and, and frankly, often being surprised about what the regions were doing or what the winemakers were doing. And, and I take it Ernie Lawson was there, and uh, who else was there? doctor in full force. Yeah. Um, we, um, Wilhelm Weil was there, um, Cornelius Donhoff. Um, so many, so many amazing producers. Like if you if you look at any uh, sommeliers list of these are some of the best reasons in the world. Those winemakers were there. Yeah, it That's was cool. Really fantastic. Did you buy a ticket? Did you come over this way, or are you uh, in that celebrity status now, where they like ask you to come? I don't know if I'd call myself a celebrity, but uh, fortunately, uh, I was here uh, at the grace of them. Ah, cool. So, uh, so they found you. Yeah. That's great. And uh, so tell us about some of the restaurants you have out there in uh, the other Washington. So um, in Washington, D.C., we Star Restaurants, we really just have one. It's called Le Diplomat. It is a uh, French brasserie. Um, we are one of the most popular restaurants, uh, not just the nation's capital, but in the country, which is a huge honor. I loved it. Um, really, really great spot. Uh, the idea is it's 1956. You just stepped off a train at Garde Nord or Garde Lyon in Paris, walked across roads to a brasserie. What would it look like, sound like, smell like, taste like? Um, it's a really fantastic restaurant. In fact, 90% of that building we antiqued from France. So wow. uh, over the bar is the bike that was w raced by Vieto in the 1954 Tour de France and his Maillot Jaune from first place and his team jersey and his pump and all of that, you know, all of the all of the furniture. <laughs> the oh, yeah, we got the pump, the seat, everything. All the furniture is antique. Uh, but uh, apart from the dynamic atmosphere, just the actual restaurant itself, it's one of my favorite places to eat. Awesome. Um, and not just because I work for the company. It really is a it fantastic restaurant. It was great. I remember joining you, and you were so gracious and took great care of us and uh, had a good time in Washington, D.C. Speaking with Eric Siegelbaum, who is the corporate director for Star Restaurants in Washington, D.C. and the East Coast. I'm sure you have a lot more restaurants. Um, but when we come back from this break, uh, I poured some wine. Welcome back to Washington. I poured some Washington wine. So we're going to chat about We're going to test your sommelier chops and uh, just have some fun. This, is, this isn't a test. You know what the wines are. But we're just going to chat up, uh, sip a little, maybe spit. <laughs> Who knows? So stick around, folks. We'll be right back here on Happy Hour Radio. He's back, and he's in charge. Kirby Wilbur, live and local weekdays, 9 to noon. Talk Radio 570, KVI. KVI, want to know weekends. Time for another round of Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. All right, happy Saturday night. Welcome back to Happy Hour Radio. Time for round three. Hope you got something great in your glass. And speaking of glasses, I've got three glasses of wine, one red, one, well, kind of gold, and one pink. And speaking of pink, I got my pink pal, <laughs> Eric Siegelbaum. When I think of pink, I think of flamingos, and that's why I said pink, because you lived in Florida. Eric Siegelbaum is a corporate wine director for Star Restaurants and uh, an old Seattle boy's back in town. So, Eric... Um, I've got some Washington wine here. You probably haven't had any of it, but tell me, what are they drinking on the East Coast? So, you know, actually, Washington is really well represented out East. Um, I might be part of the fault for that one, but uh, uh -huh. I, I beat the Washington State drum uh, very loudly. Uh, but, uh, you know, a lot of French wine, California definitely well represented, uh, increasing interest in Italy and Spain, and, and really, you know, uh, especially in like the, the D.C. and New York area, people are really getting excited about wine more than they're getting excited about regions. 
So I find more and more the conversation is what's exciting, what's unusual, what's special. Um, you know, Muscateller from Hungary is just as exciting to some people as California Cab once was. So I'm, I really feel like uh, the East Coast community is really sort of in the renaissance of we love great wine, not we love wine from a specific place necessarily. And as much as I do love Washington, you know, if you look at uh, D.C. or the other Washington, it's close to Virginia wine country and there's some wine uh, wineries right. in Maryland. But because there aren't so many producers around, you know, if, compared to Seattle, which is right between Washington State wine country and Oregon wine country, um, there is a little bit less of a we want to drink local uh, and a little more of a we want to drink well. Yeah. Oh, I like that. We Drinking well is what it's all about. No matter what you like, make sure you've got lots of it. Um, I was been, I've been to a Rhode Island winery. Uh, I've had some Maryland wine. In fact, I blind tasted our Somme group one day on a Bordeaux blend from Maryland, and they all thought it was Bordeaux. It was really, really cool. Of course, you know, they dismissed it. <laughs> That's how it goes. <laughs> hey, there's some really great wines coming from out east. Cabernet Franc is thriving in Virginia. It does really well. Tanat is doing incredibly Tanat? well. Tanat in Virginia does well, and Viognier, too. Oh, I can see you and you doing yeah. well. Yeah, yeah, because you got the heat and uh, it does well. Um, well, I've got three glasses of wine here, and uh, one of the wines is, is I thought it'd be fun. I pulled out a 2006 uh, Le Number no. 41 Fry's Vineyard Waluke Slope Semillon, and uh, we talk about great wines of the world, and Semillon's one of those... Um, underrepresented wines of, of the world. So tell me what you know about Semillon. Well, I, I agree Semillon is underappreciated. I mean, if you look at it as a, from a great perspective, it is the workhorse that makes some of the best white wines in the world as good as they are. I mean, Oprion Blanc has Semillon in it. Right? Some of the best Bordeaux Blancs have it. Um, what it gives texturally and structurally is so valuable. And I have found increasingly that Semillon grown in the right place is just a standout varietal on its own. Wow, I just took a sip of this while you're chatting because I got thirsty. I've been chatting too much and uh, really cool. It's fantastic. Wow, go figure. And it turned um, really dark gold. I should say just gold because it used to be a little lighter yellow, straw yellow. Um, who knew? I mean, people don't age these wines unless you're a Sauterne or something because Semillon is very susceptible to uh, Botrytis cinerea and uh, the Noble Rot, um, thin skin, but it. This is actually a very clean, a little bit of oak, um, very just a bit of texture, uh, very oily. Yeah, and it's amazingly fresh at 10 years old. You know, Semillon is not a grape I think about when I think of like acid forward uh, and freshness. Um, this has it. I mean, it's got great acidity. It's bright. It's a decade old, uh, which just proves white wine's age. They do, and uh, congratulations to uh, Marty Club and the team out there at Lecole Number no. 41, which was founded in 1983. I think that was winery number no. three in Walla Walla. Um, go figure. And I put it on my my shelf. I saw it turning gold. I said, gosh, you know, why not? Let's open it with my pal Eric Siegelbaum. Um, cool. Uh, fun wine. And uh, do you have a wine s uh, cellar out there in D.C.? Oh, yeah. A few of them. Yeah. <laughs> really? <laughs> no, uh, matter, no matter how big I build it, it's just never big enough. Oh, very good. Um, large formats and all that? Everything. All right. Well, uh, so this is the treat. Next wine is uh, Coral Wines Pink Coral Rosé. This is a wine that I made. Made. And you don't have to love it, but if you don't, you know, you'd be like one of the four out of 10,000 people that <laughs> didn't. That, that one time the winemaker puts his wine in front of you and says, tell me in front of the entire listening audience what yeah, you think about my wine. That's right. Put you on the spot. 85% uh, Morvedra, 15% Senso. It's 2014 vintage. And um, so it has a little bit of age, but... You know the funny thing about rosé is that no one drank old no one drank old rosé because they weren't made well. But
But if a wine is built well with great structure, acidity, uh, a little bit of tannin, alcohol, etc., it will last. So tell me what you think of this. Well, you know, and to that point, I have an 07 rosé that uh, Domaine d'Aolé from uh, Provence, not only 2007, it actually saw some oak. And I have it on the list right now, and it is drinking beautifully. So, mm. yeah. It, 2007, huh? Yeah, who would have thought? And they disco in that. I mean, that's the problem. Everyone's like got this, uh, you know, misconception that we have to drink the fresh rose. Well, you know, there is a concept of summer juice. I want it right out of the tank, fresh and, and ready to go. But, uh, you know, people forget rose is wine, and wine is something that is made by most to be something that is more than just its immediacy and will continue to grow and improve if it's done properly. Mm. So I have, you know, I love aged rosé. And, you know, to that point, if you ever had Lopez de Heredia's old rosés, I mean, 20, 30 years later, they are still lively and spry. I haven't, because I think sometimes those wines, the red wines, look like rosé. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, as much as I like them, you have to like Brett, because that's that's there. I mean, Lopez de Heredia is a, uh, a Rioja producer, which is a very classic style of their um, uh, Tempranillo and uh, one of our favorite producers when we taste blind. Uh, but I made this, you know, my first time ever making wine. Pretty clean, crisp, delicious, yeah. dry. Tell, tell me about your first time making wine, because the more I learn about white making wine, the less I ever want to do it. Oh, um, you know, making wine is the fun part. It's selling, selling it. <laughs> that's that's uh, the challenge. Um, well, making wine really is about, you know, I, I always heard winemakers say the wine is made in the vineyard, and I didn't necessarily understand that until actually I picked a grape and said it's ready to harvest, because I didn't do anything. I mean, the vineyard did it all, and there it is. I mean... I, I put it all together, but uh, the yeasts were working for me, and the vineyard workers were working. So, um, you know, the winemaker, especially with rosé, uh, it's, it's kind of a cush job, except to get to the sales part. <laughs> right, right. So speaking of the vineyard, then, uh, I imagine being Rhone varietals that uh, Mr. Boucher had something to do with this? Oh, you know what? I talked to Dick Boucher about that, but, um, you know, I got in the game, and I started calling up people. I mean, you know, Boucher's fruit's always taken, so yeah. I, I I didn't want to, like, cash in my chips sort of to, to, to get on a face. So uh, this is Black Rock, which is an old Waterbrook vineyard, um, 1996. Uh, we had 2.1 acres of Morved, owned by the Corliss family. And uh, uh, Strand Vineyard uh, Senso, which is 1,900 mm. feet, high elevation. So we were all about natural acidity, um, clean, crisp, dry, delicious, and, uh, well, screw top. So you sell a lot of screw tops at your restaurant? Oh, yeah, but I also don't discriminate based on packaging. Not to sound cliche, it really is what's inside that counts. Um you know, screw tops are great for speed behind a bar and a busy restaurant. Um, it's easy for servers, but at the end of the day, I I care about what's beneath the cap. Yeah, well, or behind the cardboard or behind box. The yes, yes. <laughs> you know, what? I I, uh, I when I was here in Seattle, we were one of the first uh, restaurant groups to start working with keg wine. Um, format. Oh right. Format does not dictate quality. Um, yeah. We had some amazing juice that winemakers are putting into kegs for us and you know once people get over the initial shock that it's not coming out of the wine on tap I know yeah. I mean, that's a good thing Schwartz Brothers was one of the first to do wine on tap and uh, I think it really paved the way I'm taking no credit for this this was not my idea in terms of putting wine in a keg but I think it paved the way for uh, the direction that the future of winemaking is going kind of where the world was 20 years ago with how right. they felt about screw caps yeah we're going to be there in 15 years with with that i mean they're take your jug and go fill it up right, right? i like the like growler. they do all over eastern and western europe but but not even that it's it's sustainable it's renewable it's recyclable it is far less environmental impact operationally it's you know it takes up much less space in a restaurant you can serve it more quickly the first glass and the last glass will be of the same quality no matter how long that keg's been, keg's been tapped. So there are a lot of benefits both operationally and financially and environmentally 
I'm all for it. I know. And so you don't have to buy like a 12-pack of kegs. You just buy one keg. One at so a time. <laughs> you're saving all the time and effort, and it's it's always there. I love that. Uh, gosh, it takes me back to my fraternity days. <laughs> <laughs> you were probably drinking a different type of keg back we then. We were. Uh, the, the Falstaff or something. <laughs> $32. Well, and you know who loves it the most is Barbacks. They have so many less full bins of glass to take out at the oh, end of the night. Uh, I know. And what will our... Uh, what will the... Uh, well, the vagrants do. I always <laughs> thought they should be hanging out um, in the alleys. Anyway, talking with Eric Siegelbaum. Um, Eric, we have a red wine here, and this is uh, a sequel, which is made by John Duvall and part of the uh, Long Shadows Empire. Um, our patriarch, uh, one of our patriarchs, I should say, of Washington wine, Alan Shoup, who's actually a California guy, came up here. And when we come back from this break, we're going to try this red wine and uh, chat more with my pal Eric Siegelbaum, who's the corporate wine director for Star Restaurants. How many restaurants do you have? 34 right now with more on the way. And you're you're the guy for all that? I I guess so. Yeah, I, yeah you're flying around. <laughs> They're stuck and, with me. Yeah, you're like the flying wine director. You used to be flying a winemaker, now the flying wine director. Hey, folks, if you ever miss a show, um, check out our website. It's uh, happyhourradio.net. And uh, if you have any questions or suggestions about some great guests, uh, send me an email to ask at happyhourradio.net. Do you have a Twitter handle? You know, I don't. I haven't gotten on the Twitter. Yeah, well, you're not missing anything. But for all of our friends who are into Twitter, just like me, it's at Happy HR Radio. Hey, folks, stick around. We'll be right back here on 570 KVI. Start your day the right way. John Carlson, live and local, 6 to 10 a.m., Talk Radio 570, KVI. You're in the know with KVI Want to Know Weekends. Here's more Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. All right, happy Saturday night. Time for round four. Hope you got something great in your glass. I've got three glasses in front of me. Well, one's almost empty. That's my pink coral rosé. Uh, speaking with my pal Eric Siegelbaum, who's the corporate wine director for Star Restaurants at starr-restaurants.com. Check it out. If you ever get to the East Coast, uh, Le Diplomat uh, in Washington, D.C. was a fantastic experience. Of course, when you know uh, the wine director, he takes great care of you. But uh, just drop his name, everybody. <laughs> Go out there and say, you know, E. Hey, um, speaking of E, we got the sequel here. And uh, you've had Syrah. You guys sell a lot of Shiraz out there? You know, Syrah is actually really popular. Uh, at Le Diplomat, we're a French restaurant, so it's a lot of uh, Southern Rhone. Um, but, and also Northern Rhone, I should say. But, yeah, Syrah is actually doing very, very well. Um really globally and Washington Syrah definitely has uh, has a footprint there yeah especially with uh, Chateau Saint-Michel bringing in those French winemakers from uh, the Northern Rhone to produce some Washington Syrah in that style haven't had it yet but uh, we'll have to get them on on our show sometime uh, this is sequel Syrah I think it was uh, produced in 2098 maybe I think might be the yeah, first yeah late year. 90s maybe yeah and John Duvall was the winemaker head winemaker for Grange and Penfolds uh, for 15 years uh, Cool Cat um, and go figure, he comes here. You know, Alan Shoup was the uh, the president of Chateau Saint-Michel. He brought in some great winemakers. He's got like eight or nine of them um, from around the world bringing their talents and their perspective of world-class winemaking to Washington. And so John Duvall, uh, of course, being in the Barossa Valley, he is now making Columbia Valley Syrah. This is called Sequel 2006. What do you think? 
It's pretty fantastic. Is it? It's it's Grange winemaking, uh, Washington approachability. Mmm. You know that that smells different than typical Washington Syrah. And you know Syrah has gone through a an evolution. It's been a, a hard road to hoe because back in '05, everyone was like, "We got to do Syrah," and then no one understood it because they were putting too much oak on it. And, and here we are, '06. Um, when you think about Syrah, Eric, what uh, flavors are you looking for to be? What do you call classic? Uh, well, again, depending on the region, that makes a big deal. But uh, in terms of classic Syrah, I'm looking for dark fruit. I'm looking for some roasted or intense or rich cooked notes. Um, definitely spice and smoke, bacon fat, leather, um, wild herbs, all, all of that uh, that good supportive stuff. Basically, I'm looking for like a complete main course. I want the smoked meat and the vegetables and the dark fruit sauce all in a glass. Wow, I like that description, and uh, we kind of got that here. Um, you know what? It's it's unfair just to pour it in the glass because I think this needs a little bit of decanting to sort of uh, um, evolve and to show its uh, you know what it's been hiding and, and working on for so long. Um, have uh, what's your what's your most prominent seller out there in DC? Hmm. Uh, Syrah wise or just in general? In general. Well, Southern Rhone is pretty popular. We we go through a lot of Chateauneuf, but right now being warm, it's uh, Sancerre. 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 Really? Cannot get enough of it. Wow. And uh, who are you are you doing bourgeois or? Um, oh, I have oh. a lot. Uh, I do a lot of Sancerre there. Uh, some of my favorites are uh, Pascal and Nicholas uh, oh, yeah. Reverdy, the Les Angelo, um, Pascal Jolivet's. Uh, We've got some really fantastic high-end uh, high-end sincere's. Uh, I have the Chen Marchand, and then I just got hooked on Vacherin, which is don't know them mind blowing, uh, hard to get. Uh, so I pre-apologize to anyone listening. Blowing. Uh, it's un- it's unicorn. Uh, wow. It's unicorn wine. Uh, they have won the Guin Chev. It didn't even come into D.C. Despite my begging and pleading to get six bottles, I got nothing. Um, but the whole allocation for, for Washington, D.C. was, I think, 36 bottles across of four cuvées of, of the reserve cuvées that they do. But they are incredible. Gunflint, like you've never tasted, like minerality. Uh, you wouldn't believe that Didier Dagano didn't make them. They're that good. Oh, well, he is the master of Sauvignon Blanc and really... Um if you ever get a chance to try Didier Dagano, it's an amazing expression of Sauvignon Blanc, Selects, and uh, the Fumé, um, yeah, great yeah. wines. What's your most expensive bottle on your list? Uh, right now, my most expensive bottle is a 1995 uh, Chateau Latour. Chateau Latour. Mm-hmm. Okay, that would be 1200 no, uh, $2,600. No, fourteen. Fourteen. I was yeah. gonna say twelve. Shoot. I like to reward people for making good decisions, and yeah. I think drinking great wine is a good decision. So uh, we're not quite as generous to ourselves with our wine pricing. We're more generous to our guests. Um, That's good. Well, I want you to be compelled to drink something incredible. So. And you're really that Le Diplomat was a really neighborhood spot. It was in a great little location. What's the location there? Uh, the area is called Logan Circle. Yeah. Um, also now known as the 14th Street Corridor, uh, but. Uh, Really, really great spot. Uh, so fun. So if people want to find more about you, how can we find Eric Siegelbaum on the World Wide Web? Well, I am on the Book of Faces, um, but in terms of Instagram, <laughs> now, full disclosure, I'm not very active, and if you do start following me on Instagram, you're going to see a lot of photos of bottles of wine or vineyards or dirt or vines, but um, it's Eric for Wine, so E-R-I-K, the number four. That's right. W-I-N-E. 
All right. Eric Siegelbaum, Corporate Wine Director for Star Restaurants in Washington, D.C. Hey, pal. So good to have you. Thanks for joining me on Happy Hour Radio. It was great to be back, and thanks for the great juice, oh. especially yours. Oh, thank you very much. Pink Coral Rosé, you got to love it. Hey, folks, I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, remember, this is uh, August. you got to get out there for the auction of Washington wines. And, uh, of course, the Sunset Supper at Pike Place Market. Everyone missed the show. Don't forget, happyhourradio.net. And remember, folks... Life is always better with a designated driver. Cheers! Cheers.